Talking about remembrance, remembering. And this, uh, this is a common enough word that we talk about, that we forget, we remember, you know, ordinary, uh, conversation, but, uh, that this life that we're in is we, we get distracted and we forget. So then, that's why, uh, meditation is really, mindfulness is really like a kind of remembering, bringing ourselves back into the present. Because we forget and we get carried away with, uh, feelings or, with all the, but it doesn't mean that we're trying to hold on to the, you know, like the breath in them or the silence or anything as a kind of fixed position. But it, it gives us, it centers us, it allows us to, to uh, say, let go, to break through the, the momentum of habits. Because the law of nature is that whatever is born dies, or whatever begins ends. We're, we're, we're letting nature, uh, take its natural, taking its, its, its course, following its, its natural law. We're not trying to, to, uh, they interfere with it. So we're, we're allowing things to cease. Which isn't destruction or nihilistic, uh, kind of, it's not a kind of nihilism, but it's letting, allowing things to flow according to their nature. So we practice this with our minds in the things that we, when we, when we remember, uh, and are mindful, then we can let things go in the mind. It means that we can always, uh, relate to life in a much more clear and meaningful way than when we're just caught in the kind of blindness and momentum of habits and fears and desires. It's not like the aim of a Buddhist is to kind of become extinct. And it is disappear into, into the void, the unmanifest. And, and I, once I get into that unmanifest, I'm never going to manifest again. Even though sometimes we, you know, I certainly feel like that. And that, that is a, uh, that is another, uh, sense of myself as being somebody, something that's manifest that would maybe like to disappear. But in the, just note the position we're in as a human being, where this is the way it is. That if there's, there's form and there's space, there's sound, there's silence, there's, there's the, uh, the conditioned and the unconditioned. Uh, there's consciousness. And consciousness can be, uh, I mean, that we're experiencing consciousness. This is what consciousness is. It's being like this. Uh, in a separate form and experiencing the 
the, the things that impinge on this form, that affect it, both as the objects of senses and the mental objects of the mind. We can see that, that humanity, with all its ego and conceit, is Western, the Western civilization, with its modern science is, and all its uh, cleverness, is, is now destroying itself. Because even though we've, we've tried to create and we've tried to improve our nature all the time, make it better, make it fit them, the forms of our desires, we, we're paying the price now, because maybe we've gone too far with the destruction of the environment, pollution, and so forth. These are signs of, you know, the result of human greed, human conceit, human ignorance. We've, we got to a point where we were making everything better, it seemed, and then it, it reaches its peak. Now it seems to be going down. Yeah. Things get worse. Sometimes we romanticize things like Native American groups or the Amazonian Indians or the um, tribal peoples or people whose basic um, attitude to life is, is quite in tune with nature. Because we've, uh, we used to despise these groups. I remember when I was a boy in America has brought up thing American Indians. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore to say American Indians, uh, Native Americans. Which what is it? Native Americans. Uh, consider myself a Native American, <laughs> but um, the uh, we were you know I was I'm from a. a ancestrally from one of those families that uh, probably were responsible for the exploitation of those people. Uh, my ancestors were Presbyterian missionaries and pioneers in the Northwest. And so they, uh, they all said they went there to Christianize, to civilize, to... These were all savages uh, that were without Jesus and God and, and uh, of course they were we used to say things, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Outrageous, horrendous things like this. We didn't think anything. We didn't even flinch when we said it. It was just so much a, a way of thinking. But also, we now begin to appreciate the, the, say the, the way that, that humanity has in the past kind of learned to live with nature. Uh, or that that we are a part of that nature, and that and, and it's quite interesting to see what is the the purpose of say, especially the the uh, European civilization, because it seems so so basically out of touch with nature. Like we, it seems like such a completely artificial civilization. Um, the history, as far as we can trust history, is that when the Aryan tribes invaded India, there were already an existing civilization that was highly developed. In the, you can see the remains of it in 
the ruins of Mahenjadaro and Harappa, and and these were a kind of kind of Dravidian type people, kind of black skinned people who had developed cities and had uh, the art of farming and uh, agriculture and and had even developed water systems and drainage and sewage. And they also found that these, these people were probably more on the level of yoga and shamanic type uh, religious attitudes, which are a kind of contemplation of nature, where you uh, tend to say you're relation, you're watching the cycles, you're kind of opening to the to the natural laws. And so then the the Aryan tribes, of course, had all these. The, these pantheon of gods and just, uh, you can see the, the relationship of the Greek and the Scandinavian, the Germanic, uh, deities, the, the, uh, all these, these, uh, celestial deities that, that people worshiped, uh, from the Aryan tribes. And so these two kind of came together and you get the caste system and what you get now is a kind of Indian civilization. And, this is just theory, but but Buddhism seems to have been a more in line with the maybe the the native Indian or the pre-Aryan, even though they they use the because the the, the yoga and the even the use of a, a shaman is is very similar to the word samana, which we call ourselves. We all we call ourselves as samanas. Which uh, is a, a word used for people living the holy life, and many of us feel affinities with this this approach, this more kind of gnostic approach, nature religions. The uh, the, the idea of the Buddha is is understanding the rhythms of nature, the way things are. That's why we talk about Dhamma. Dhamma is a it can be translated as nature, but it's much more in, like with with the English word nature. We we tend to associate it only with a certain thing, you know, like trees and and that. Where when we say we talk about nature, we we go out and look at it and and admire it. But but I notice in I was surprised when I realized that I basically was not culturally encouraged to think of myself, this body, as a part of nature. We, we always saw nature as, as that which was separate from us. And we went to, to look at the mountains and, and listen to the birds and go to the zoo to see the animals, to look at nature as if it was, was over there. And uh, you even, you know, it surprises me how one even assumed one that this body itself was somehow outside that. Then our whole way of looking at life was this more Christian way, where God created it, and you had these all these doctrines where the body, you know, could could rise up, resurrect into the sky, or uh, a God could have uh, intercourse with a human woman and produce uh, the Christ, or all these, these kind of of ways of thinking created this this view that the natural laws were something separate from your religion, and so there was a lot of uh, confusion, I think, in 
and how to relate religion and science. And this, back in the 50s, it was, seemed almost impossible. They seemed totally opposed uh, to each other, and you had to choose. And uh, there was no no kind of, you know, one couldn't even see them as, as uh, in any other way than, than through opposition. But in the uh, practice of Dhamma, then it is like we're, if you notice what we've been doing this past week, is really watching, listening, and learning from nature. From the way things are. You know, so that you're, you're not trying to find a little Buddha inside yourself or, 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 you know, trying to prove any kind of Buddhist uh, concepts as, or, or create doctrines or impose or project anything onto the situation but center yourself you know, come to this place here to to awaken the mind to to learn how to sustain and and remember or recollect how to to watch and listen to yourself to to uh, be with the breath be with the body be with the silence is, is a way of, of, say, maybe called centering, or realizing that uh, the still point, or the place of the, the, the axis mundi, or the, the seat of enlightenment, the place where you see things as they, where there is this right knowing, right understanding, seeing things as they really are. And then the, then the, the pattern that we're watching is the impermanence of the conditions. So that, that, that includes all conditions. That includes Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Mahayana, Hinayana, Vajrayana. It includes Europe and Asia, Africa. Uh, it includes the universe, Islam, Hinduism. Everything fits into these, these patterns that, that, that all, all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. The anicca of the conditions, conditioned realm. And then there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed. So there is an escape from the form, the created form. If there was not the uncreated, unborn, unformed, then there would be no escape from the created, the born, and the formed. But because there is the uncreated unborn, then there is an escape. Which means that the Buddha was pointing beyond just the, the conditioned world the, the, that is so, that is, that is uh, what we uh, tend to just be caught in, in reactions, conditioned reactions to it. So this remembering now isn't to establish, isn't to kind of hold on to an idea of the present, but to, to a way of, of, of uh, wherever we are, of having a place that we go to, to, to establish mindfulness. Otherwise, we, we can live our whole lives just following the momentum of habit without having any, any refuge, but maybe just some kind of belief system, hope or 
whatever that we might produce, or just avoid the issues altogether. Just uh, watch television and play golf and bridge till you die. Or drink and take drugs. Do something to kill time till the body dies. Or maybe this whole experience of life is something worth paying attention to. It has its message. Every every aspect of it is something that we need to learn from. That we have the opportunity to to uh, study and examine, such as the aging process of the body, or the sicknesses that we have, or the diseases, or the pain, or the changes in the society, changes uh, the pollution of the planet. Maybe. Maybe rather than just complaining about it or blaming it on various groups of people, maybe it's, it's also something to, to study and examine. We can see how we pollute our mind with, with our negativity. How, you know, the, the pollution starts within us, where we, we create in this kind of negative perceptions in, in our consciousness, so that we, we see things through, through a kind of, veil or a kind of scum or grime that accumulates over our conscious experience. So then, meditation is like cleaning or washing the window, uh, washing the, the grime off the mirror so that you can see, you can get the, the proper reflection, good, re- clear reflection. Now, basically, I don't know what it's all about. You know, and you think, what is the purpose of this? Ultimately, you know, because you can't imagine, I can't imagine, you know. Now, if I should realize our hunship means I'll never have to come back and be me again. What does that mean? What would that be like? <laughs> because what I know is this, isn't it? The human realm. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, at least it's something that I, you know, that I can uh, relate to because it, what I've been born into, what I've been experiencing all these years. So then there's a tendency to want to think in terms of like an, an annihilationism where you, you know, there's there's a certain side of us that would like to just be dead and disappear, not have to feel, not have to exist. And then there's sometimes we were tired of feeling, tired of being conscious. When we go to sleep sometimes, you know, we just long to to fall down on the bed and just crash out into sleep. Tired of existing, of feeling, of consciousness. So sleep gives us a taste of annihilation. Or we just, we, we disappear into the void of sleep. And then the other extreme is to think in terms of, I want to go to a place where there's no disease, where everybody's happy forevermore, and, and uh, we can live with God. This is the old Christian one. You, if you're a good Christian, 
And then when you die, you go up in heaven, live with God and uh, forever. And uh, that sounded all right when you're a child. You can kind of think that might be rather fun. But when you really contemplate it, if you're looking, if you're looking at it in terms of a conditioned mind of having to live with God forever, <laughs> it doesn't sound so great. And having like, remember these songs like where you 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 go to the land with the soda water fountains, you have lemonade and ice cream and. <laughs> sweet and, and, and imagine living forever with that and uh, as you grow up you begin to think that would get pretty boring uh, just being just the having beauty and and uh, pleasure as a continuous diet so you know, you, you, you can see that thought either takes you to an absurdity or to an annihilation. So, if you take the idea of eternal happiness from the conditioning of the mind, uh, it, you, it ends up in one of these kind of fantasy worlds of, that is uh, ultimately absurd, unreal, and, 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 uh, and one wouldn't really want that. To, when, when that is no longer an attractive alternative, nor is uh, the annihilation just to, to try to, to get out of life by disappearing. So, the, the humbling effect of this is that, is that the, the Buddha established what is called the middle way, which is learning to to let go of these two extremes, the the eternalist dream or the the annihilationist one, or the extremities of of conditionality. And so, how do you find a balance point between two extremes? Is you, first you have to know what the extremes are. You contemplate the extremes. So, with with suffering, that you're contemplating suffering is one extreme. Happiness is usually, you know, we're usually looking for happiness, running around trying to be happy and find happiness. And dukkha is what we're trying to run away from. So the Buddha, you know, reversed the psychology and said, understand the dukkha, this extreme of this suffering, this extreme. And then, because then through the, through the understanding of dukkha, you see the, also that, that dukkha and sukha, happiness and suffering, are connected. And through that, you realize a balance point, say, that isn't a kind of mediocre compromise, but a transcendent. You begin to, to get over or, and get beyond your fascination, your identity with the condition. This is, of course, a continuous practice, because... Um, all the time we have our karma, the results of previous actions arise. Just the fact that we're, we're, we're alive within a human form and we have to bear with the karma of that, with the aging process it's, it's, uh, and disease and, and death and so forth. We have to also bear with the emotional 
karma, of separation from the loved, and having to put up with difficult things, and be with the unloved, and wanting things we don't have. So, this way of reflecting helps us to transcend those those kind of experiences, which doesn't mean we get out of them, but we we see them in terms of what they really are. Like pain, like like uh, just the physical pain, going to to learning to accept, learning to bear with, learning to the difference between physical sensation and emo- the emotional aversion we have to it. And that takes patience and and a willingness to say, look at something that before you've only rejected and, and tried to get rid of and see and, and accept it for what it is and then be able to, to recognize what you create onto it out of ignorance. So like, if you have a pain in your leg, then you you want to get rid of it. So, the the difference between the actual sensation and the emotional reaction, that you can see. So you can let go, resolve these emotional reactions. Because these are, say, your own personal karma. It's not the... the, the body's karma is, is to experience pain. So, that's, that's, that's not personal anymore. It's not like my pain. It's just this form, this state we're in is a, is a painful state, isn't it? To be, so this, this body is, when you recognize so much of your life is just trying to be comfortable with it. Because it is, uh, it is always, there's so much discomfort in regards to the body. Have to feed it, to rest it, bathe it, even at its best. Not to mention the 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 diseases and the the problems of age. So that this this realm, you know, is a is I say a sense realm. It's sensitive. It feels this way. So much of our experience of life is is dealing with discomfort, physical discomfort as you're very much aware of, sitting here for the past week. It's nice to think about sitting, isn't it? But then when you're sitting for 45 minutes, the the body uh, can produce some pretty strong kind of sensation. This This is just the way it is. This state of sensitivity includes pain. So pain is a part of our life. There's nothing wrong with it, or there's nothing wrong with us for feeling it. It's just what it is. But it's our what what we do with it is usually uh, we just try to get rid of it. We we don't we don't learn from it. We don't uh, contemplate it. We're merely trying to ignore it, annihilate it. Or live a life where where we can control and try to get out. We can take all these kind of uh, analgesic drugs or things that will uh, diminish the, our sensitivity. But when we begin to recognize that the, the state of sensitivity may be something not to kind of uh, try to uh, 
control and and uh, to be frightened of or to to try to to stop the sensitive state we're in try to to uh, annihilate it we 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 awaken to the fact that maybe we this is something to learn from from sense experience from our eyes our ears nose tongue and body from our brain from our hearts from the emotional range that we have it's all belongs doesn't it it's all uh, our karma it's it's what we what we were born we're born into this realm and we we have to live this span of the lifespan of this body with with these kind of conditions affecting it how to relate these conditions to the unconditioned or to the deathless it's not annihilation so it's not just kind of hoping that we'll we'll disappear into the uh, the unmanifest forever if there's still a sense of just that view of of i want to disappear is is the problem but to be able to to awaken and realize the natural law of the relate the condition and the unconditioned because we're in a position in this form in conscious form to to realize that the 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 cessation of the condition which then that cessation is the realization of the unconditioned But it's like nothing at all. It's not like something that is absolutely fantastic. It's uh, subtle and therefore it, it's overlooked. And uh, what we're so attached to in the force of habit is usually looking for something like God or some kind of magnificent experience that we uh, imagine. Or like a, a heaven realm, a place of bliss where we just float on a pink cloud for eternity. Some, sometimes we do have, we experience, uh, there are moments, isn't there, where, where the, the self drops away, where there's just the, this, and that's a, that's a natural state, where there's the, the consciousness, but there's and there's a there's awareness through this consciousness, but there's no sense of yourself anymore. Your self has disappeared. The self consciousness, the conditioned view of yourself. That that state of bliss isn't extreme. It's not like high as a kite. But it's a natural way of being. Which of course then the the grasping mind will when the, when we get back into the old mode of thinking, then we want, then we remember it. We want to have it again. So things like this is a uh, the first year of my monastic life. I I had a very uh, some very blissful times, and uh, the second year I didn't. And uh, so I had the first year. I seemed to seemed to get a lot of bliss and this emptiness and so forth. And and uh, 
And then I, and I kept thinking that that I'd attained some some state. And uh, but then the second year, I kept trying to do all the things to to get this bliss back, and I couldn't do it. You know, when I was when I was trying to to get this, uh, because I was remembering, I was, I was. I remember the, the, these, these kind of insights, these experiences, and I was attaching to the memory and then trying to get something through remembering it. Well, what I needed to remember wasn't the, the happiness and the bliss that I had the previous year, but remember to let go of it. To let go of, not attach to the memory, to, to trust in the flow of life and to, to uh, to not uh, say practice in order to to uh, to have bliss, but to practice in order to let go of the causes of suffering. So that's why we, in the the Buddhist uh, context, we we talk about suffering and its causes and the cessation. And then the, the path, the eightfold path, is based on this right understanding of this. It can be like perfect understanding. And this eightfold path then includes the 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 right intention, like you have right understanding of the. They use the word right, or some some people like to use perfect. But it it, it means that this is this is the. This is the this is the transcendent path. Now it's not. It doesn't mean right as a, as the opposite of uh, of left, but right as the as that comes from the the understanding of things as they really are, or the perfect understanding. Perfect understanding. Then the intention for our life is established. We'll say we we still have to live through the uh, aging process of this body in the societies that we're living in, with the families that, we're, that we belong to. So, then the, but the intention then is we, go, we know our direction. Then there's the right action, right speech, right livelihood, and the kind of moral side of it, where then we, we're not going to use our body or our speech for harmful things, for wrong things. We have this, we know now to use our, our human state, our human body and our, and our ability to speak. Because this is body and speech, right action, right, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So we we take on the responsibility, say, as a member of a society, to be, uh, say, honest and fair, and to uh, live in a way that is not, say, uh, corrupt or immoral, causing uh, misery in the society, causing division. Right livelihood. You trying to to live our lives in a way that how we 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 live our lives, how the kind of professions or ways we 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 learn how to survive, make our living is is done in the right way, rather than just trying to 
to make money and, and just trying to take advantage of the system. And we have to live with ourselves, so we, we want to do things that are, that we can respect ourselves for. So right speech, right action, right livelihood then take us to the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. They say right understanding, right intention come from up here. Right speech, right action, right livelihood is about how to use the body and the speech. Then the, then the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration is the heart, the, the, the emotional balance. So, they, our human state is, is a heartfelt state, isn't it? We, uh, as much as we want to be rational creatures and, uh, and, uh, and kind of computerize the world and the universe, uh, our suffering isn't, isn't through, through, um, through rational, uh, through, through the rational function of the mind, our suffering is there, isn't it? Self-hatred, uh, feelings of uh, fear, anxiety, and worry, and self-consciousness, and and all the, the, the that wide range of emotional experience that that uh, we feel and we experience life in this way. When we go to the brain, when we use the intellect, then we can kind of get out of that for a while. Like it, it's, it's nice to kind of read and and kind of use. And my, I don't, I'm, not, I'm computer illiterate. I've never don't know a thing about them. Uh, but from people that I know that use them, they get very absorbing because you you're up in your head. You don't have to feel life. Where are they in the in the family or in the um, the relationships outside your computer, in the office, or in the society, and so forth, can be very uh, fraught with all kinds of difficulties around what? The emotions. Because, uh, say, there's an imbalance, there's an effort, mindfulness, concentration, there's, there's no, there, these things are not uh, they're not right effort yet, or right mindfulness, or right concentration. So our emotions tend to, we, you know, we, we tend to go all over the place emotionally because we're so caught in the power of, say, praise and blame, success and failure, happiness and suffering. And notice how sometimes we, uh, here, we, we get so polite, we, Sometimes we, in the Sangha here at Amravati, we, we're so, we're so very refined compared to the rest of the world. Not bragging, but in a way, it kind of, it, it kind of, it's a kind of complaint because it sometimes, uh, we expect life to be too polite, too precious. Everybody to kind of be, so very sensitive to everything, and we expect maybe a level of refinement that that we can that we feel safe with. So we also need to have periods where we where we can express our true feelings, our emotions, 
rather than always couch them in uh, polite language and and in uh, mild ways of expression, because uh, we also need to to accept the the coarseness of life. We aren't we aren't just trying to say develop our, our ourselves into refined human being as a, as a refuge, but to be able to uh, say respond to life in all its possibilities from coarse to refine. Having been in the Navy for four years, I do appreciate a certain level of coarseness. Male coarseness. Not as a steady diet, but it does have its, <laughs> its, uh, its power and its importance. Politeness taken to an extreme is effete, isn't it? It's weak. So we're, we're, we're trying to, to find the balance. And the balance isn't, as I said before, a mediocre compromise, but a, a transcendence. Because the refuge is in, in that watching position. So we're seeing the, the movement of the condition. Like right now, whatever has arisen in your consciousness, it's this way. And so you can, by, by remembering that, then you, you can kind of stay with what you're feeling now until it ceases. So you're, you're learning how to see the cessation of something and, and recognize when, when something that was there is no longer there. Like it's important to notice also, like if you feel angry, if anger arises in your mind, so that you know that right now there's this angry feeling. So you, you, you kind of notice this, you, you stay, you concentrate your mind on this feeling of being angry. Try to just get it on the feeling level, not on the analytical level. I'm trying to figure out why you're angry, but the anger's like this. And then as you, as you, you're holding the thing or watching it, it will cease. And then you, then you note, make a special note of your consciousness when there's no anger. So that you're, you're, you're actually informing, you're, you're noticing the presence and absence. And this is very important to, not just be aware of the anger and then and, and just not bother to notice when there isn't when it's gone but to, but then to see and, and not to think of well I'm no longer angry anymore I'm okay but see the to, to note that feeling of when the the relief or the sense of when there's no anger when something that was there is no longer there so there's this knowing this that that which can see things as they are And one finds that a relief. Because the perceptual realm, the, the view, the ego, is very much thinking that, like you can say, this man is an angry person. Or they're giving you kind of information like that. You say, Arjun Samedo, I get angry easily, and I have a whole history of blowing up and, and uh, making a scene. Uh, Everybody says I'm an angry person, 
how can I change? I don't want to be an angry person. How can I get rid of this anger? And then I, then I go, well, you know, like trace it all back maybe to childhood experiences or uh, whatever. We can, we can analyze it and figure out, you know, why and what makes you angry and all that. But it's still the sense of, the sense as it is, there's still this remaining assumption that, that I am an angry person and it's my problem. And then even if I suggest, you know, I suggest, well, you really do have a problem there. Anger is one of your problems. You've got to work on your anger. This is how I hear people talking sometimes. You've got an anger problem and you've got to work out this problem. And so, so then you, yes, you've got to work out my problem. My, Ajahn Sumato told me, because I'm an angry man, and I've got to get rid of it, and uh, and it's a problem, and I've got to work on it. Well, I work on myself. What should I do? And and so some sometimes we we go to a kind of absurd de- extreme, thinking that we deliberately seek out things to make us angry. But the the basic the basic assumption and delusion is still operating. It's still like me and mine. It's still underlying the even though you. You, it might be helpful to think like that to a certain degree, yet the the basic cause is still still is you still convinced you still believe that it's you, and that's a that's an assumption we make. I mean, it isn't it isn't like because we we would never challenge that the sense of ourselves. But in, notice that the Buddhist especially in Theravada Buddhism, where they emphasize anatta, or not-self. Not as a, not as a doctrine, but as a uh, tool to recollect from. Is this anger really me? And, and so we begin to look at anger, not, not as my problem, but for what it is. It feels like this. When there's anger, when there is anger in the mind, it's this way. And so we, we're, we're looking at the mood of the mind, what they call the jitta, or the, 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 mind, the conditioning of the mind itself. It's like this, the aramana, they call it in Pali, arom in, in Thai. So that they, they, we're, we're, we're looking at the arom, or the aramana, or the, the mood of the mind. So like when there's anger, we begin to, you know, the anger's like this. Like you, you're, you're looking at it at, for what it is. You're not, and you're, you're not trying to think of it in terms of my anger, it's just this way. So then we remember, I mean, when, when, when we feel this anger in life, then we can we, we train ourselves to remember, to look at this, to, to kind of try to look at it, feel it, be with it. And it works very well. Like I, last, last year I had this man come who was really angry with me. And uh, really angry. So he said, I want to have a talk with you, Ajahn Sumato. So, uh, 
I, well, my immediate reaction was, how can I get out of this? <laughs> anyway, I, I couldn't, so we, we agreed to meet at a certain time, and then he, uh, he started having a go, and he was, he was really wound up. So I, I sat there, and I kept, uh, I, I determined to just walk here, because he was obviously going to tell me off. So I was sitting on here, on my, of how I was feeling, his, his words. So I found that I, I was qu- quite, uh, as long as I stayed here, then he could say all these things, and, uh, and I could accept all that he said. I was feeling it. I wasn't trying to, I mean, I could see myself, you know, like indignation, how dare he talk to me like this, or, or, you know, the emotional reactions were, but I was aware of them as, you know, re- emotional reactions. Uh, or, you know, wanting to tell him off, or wanting to, that's not true, you've got it all wrong, or set him straight. I was watching how the, 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 the reactions would go. Well, there's, there's this sense of watching, and there's this composure, and the acceptance of this man's anger. So, like, like he, I was accepting this anger, and I was aware of my own emotional reactions to it, but I wasn't uh, feeding the anger. I wasn't, by, by uh, you know, I wasn't kind of yelling back at him. I was just receiving it and listening, paying attention. And then after a while, he seemed to, it all seemed to go, and he lost, he, he, uh, the anger, his anger disappeared. And that's quite interesting, because it had obviously been, this had been a build-up over a long period of time, and and he was, you know, and and I knew that that uh, that if if I started uh, getting aggressive and angry back, that uh, would be you know disaster. There'd be no no point in that. So so uh, doing this, then it seemed to. To, for him, he kind of lost his anger. And I didn't feel angry. I didn't, I didn't feel, uh, anger back because I'd been with it, my own kind of emotional reactions to it while it was happening. And, and it was such a relief to, to, uh, just, to, you know, to just be able to, to use life in this way, to, to, uh, be able to, Work with these, with these, with these strong emotions, uh, in a wise way, not through trying to get rid of them, but through this understanding of them. And then noting that the mind, say, where these, this, this emotions up, then the, then the, the gentleman calmed down, and then there's this kind of pleasant, uh, conversation. I was watching that, this feeling of, so you you're, you you have a, a way of, of uh, dealing with difficult situations that they before we're only either you you just you know you just grin and bear it and just uh, take it on the chin but inside you were you were really angry and you you know you were resentful of some of that kind of abuse 
but you know have no way of resolving that. Or you 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 manage to maybe out anger him. No, I, when I I can get very angry, I can be terrified. People say when I get angry, I'm really terrifying to people. I don't see why, but. <laughs> They say I'm really frightening. I could, I could, I could probably frighten him. <laughs> but this other way I like much better because <laughs> because it probably wouldn't be good for my blood pressure. <laughs> the other way. So this this way of, of of say remembering, bringing attention back, it's like here in the heart. It's actually you can use your body in this way. When we talk about the heart, it's where we feel life. So, and it is you you if you bring attention to this part of your body when say, when there's emotions and just kind of feel those emotions. Just be the watcher, the acceptor. Not the critic, not the the one who watches and criticizes, but the just the the one who knows it for what it is. And then, when it ceases, you also notice the absence of of it. So, you can also do this with yourself. The sense of yourself as a person, uh, to be aware of yourself as a person. I'm this person. And when there, when that sense of yourself is, is, is not there, I found that not self is bliss, to not be anybody. But you don't have to kind of knock yourself out, but to recognize that, that you, you, we do have a choice. We don't have to create ourselves as, as personalities. We, through mindfulness and, Wisdom, we can actually realize the, the non-self, realize anatta, in which we, there's consciousness and the sensitive state is here and now, but we're not creating uh, uh, ourselves as a, as a personality, as anything. And in that state, then the, there is a, a, there's a kind of feeling of bliss and relief. Because to become a person, uh, just as the, as a momentum of habit and and ignorant out of ignorance, then of course it, we're always worried about what people think and whether people like us, whether we'll succeed or fail, or whether we're we're attractive or unattractive, or lovable or not, or or what's going to happen to me when I get old and. And uh, all the rest, the whole problems of the world, you can see so much of one's life was worrying about what the other people think. How many of you worry about what other people think? It's a common problem. We suffer a lot imagining what other people think. And uh, this self-consciousness is is uh, is, a, is is a lot of suffering. When that self-consciousness is absent, then 
it's 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 a it's a kind of bliss of the mind. Use the word bliss to describe that state of non not self. Because the self is a, is what separates, isn't it? It's, it creates me as opposed to you. It's, it's what I think, what I want, what me, my body, my things, my sensitivity, my way, and all the rest of this. This always is divisive and creates the. Uh, and when we, when we, when we create this as a habit, then our life is always the experience of self-consciousness and fear and anxiety around that. Ha, ha, ha.